1: You know, Jesus said, You have this reputation that you are alive, but you're dead. Remember in Matthew's gospel, Jesus really upbraided the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the Pharisees. And what did he say to them? In Matthew 23, verse 27, he says, Woe to you. And I would encourage you to read the whole chapter 23 of Matthew, um, but he's really letting these religious leaders have it. He's not being easy on them at all. He is really, really pounding them pretty hard. And they deserved it because they were claiming to be right with God, going through all the motions, everything on the outside was looking really good.
0: Today on Truth in Christ, Jesus says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. This indicates no struggle, no fight, no persecution. It wasn't that the church at Sardis was losing the battle. A dead body has lost the battle and the fight seems over. In this letter, Jesus didn't encourage the Christians in Sardis to stand strong against persecution or false doctrine, probably because there simply wasn't significant danger of these things in Sardis. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he continues our study in Revelation chapter 3.
1: Seven golden lampstands. And here he defines them. The seven stars are the angels or the pastors of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Pretty simple, right? The stars are about the pastors of those churches. The lampstands are the churches themselves. And notice also that these stars are something that Jesus possesses and holds on to as well. We saw that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. It says that he, Jesus, had in his right hand seven stars. And in Revelation 2, verse 1, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, what does he say? His, his very first introduction to this church is, the, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And the right hand always speaks of power and authority. It speaks of, when it's speaking of the, hand of, the right hand of God, it's speaking of salvation. It's speaking of refuge and protection. So these seven stars are the pastors who are held by their creator. And I don't know about you, but that's a really comforting thing to me because it's encouraging to know that Jesus has us in addition to these pastors that he has in his hands. He also holds us. Turn with me to John's gospel chapter 10. We're going to look at verse 22. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Let's look at John chapter 10 beginning in verse 22. It says now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem and it was winter and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch and then the Jews surrounded him and said to him how long do you keep us in doubt if you are the Christ in other words if you are God in the flesh if you are the Messiah equal to God tell us plainly and Jesus answered them i told you and you do not believe the works that i do in my father's name they bear they bear witness of me But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And here's the verse I really wanted to get to, but I wanted to give the context. He says, and I give them, my sheep, Jesus says, my sheep, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and notice, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Do you get that? So Jesus here has these pastors in his right hand, and there is such a wonderful, there's such wonderful assurance really in that. And in fact, we teach the doctrine of uh, eternal security. It's it's a doctrine that is in the Bible. And it's eternal security. And this is one of those verses that really substantiate that claim because salvation is a gift of God, and God knows what He's doing, right? It's Salvation is a gift of God, and He doesn't give something and then take it back. God, when He gives, it is something, it is forever. He doesn't make mistakes. We make mistakes all the time, but God knows, and He is the one who gives salvation, So once you're saved, you are always saved. You may go through difficulty, but you are a child of God, and God will work in your life. And you know, if you think of it, if the Lord Jesus Christ has paid the price for our salvation by His death on the cross, and He places His Holy Spirit in you, which He says He does, which is the down payment of your salvation, is there anyone who is able to reverse this? Is there anyone able to take that gift Out of God's hand, out of your hand? The answer is no. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Paul says to the Ephesians, In him you trusted, in Jesus, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, notice you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee or the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Until He comes for us physically in the rapture, He places a down payment, in a sense, within us, and that is the Spirit of God. And most of us have a problem with eternal security, or some do anyway, but the problem we have with eternal security is our faith in God's Word and his promise versus our emotions and even our own performance uh, in our Christian walk. And, and that's where the rub lies, is because we don't always uh, believe that God saved me and how can I do these horrible things or how can I do this and still be a child of God? Well, God is still working, isn't he? And that's what the process of sanctification is all about. It's what it's all about. But God doesn't save you, He doesn't place His Spirit within you and then abandon you because you've done something in your life. We need to repent of those things, certainly, but but that does not mean that we are not a child of God. And if you continue in rebelliousness and you continue in habitual sin, you know, you're going to be miserable. You're going to be a miserable Christian. And there's nothing worse than a miserable Christian who once was set free, but is continuing to go back and do things that they know are wrong. And and that's not God's fault. And God will work in a life, and God still may have a hold. You know, has saved this person, but this person is still wrestling and not yet continuing to give up some issue of sin. And it's a miserable thing to to see. And, and and some of us have gone through things like that. And you know, as soon as you surrender, there is a great freedom. There's a great peace when you uh, surrender those things to the Lord. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but you understand what I'm saying. So it's important to do that. But eternal security is what the Bible teaches, and Jesus holds these these men, these pastors of these churches in His hand, as He holds you and I. Notice at the end of that verse, oh, He says something else. He says I know your works, I know your toil, I know your the things that you have done and you that you have a name that you are alive and are dead. You have a reputation that you are alive but you are dead. You know, this city as I was say, stating before had a glorious beginning, but the church and the people in it were clinging to old victories and old things of the past and they were looking always looking back on the great things back then and they were failing to live in the here and now, and going forward in victory. And that's always a bad thing to do. It's a bad thing to uh, always be looking at what happened in the past. God wants to do a great work in you today, and He wants to do great works in you going forward. So don't be looking at past victories and past glories, in a sense. Look forward to what He's doing with you now and what He's gonna do in the future. Don't ever look back, just keep going and and so many churches have have they, they do that they look back on some great pastor who you know um Uh, who started a church somewhere and his face is up on the plaque and everyone's looking at him, but nothing's going on in the church anymore because they're still worshiping what happened back then. Instead of worshiping Jesus Christ, keeping their eyes focused on him, God will share his glory with no one, with no pastor. No matter how gifted, no matter how good looking he is, no matter how well spoken he is, no matter how wealthy he is, there is no one in comparison with Jesus. And we need to keep our eyes focused on him and not on a man or on men and so there is this possibility you know jesus said you have this reputation that you are alive but you're dead remember in matthew's gospel jesus really upbraided the religious leaders in jerusalem the pharisees and what did he say to them in matthew 23 verse 27 he says woe to you and i would encourage you to read the whole chapter 23 of matthew um, but he's really letting these religious leaders have it. He's not being easy on them at all. He is really, really pounding them pretty hard. And they deserved it because they were claiming to be right with God, going through all the motions. Everything on the outside was looking really good. But notice what Jesus said, Matthew 23, verse 27. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And see, that is what happens to a church that has lost its first love. That's a church that is more concerned about the outward appearance rather than what's going on inside. Jesus, you know... um, He's not concerned about the outward appearance. We spend so much time and so much money fixing this outward tent, so we display ourselves to everyone else the way we want them to see us, and yet God can see through all of that. Aren't you glad that everybody can't see right through uh, all all of these things that we do? And there's nothing wrong with dressing modestly and and, and, and dressing respectfully. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that's all there is... If that's just a manifestation of something I want everybody to see, but there's no beauty inside, what's the, what's the worth? And our culture is filled with that. But notice, you have a name that you're alive but are dead. And you think of a, a dead church. This almost seems like a paradox. The church is something that is alive. There should never be any equating it with anything relating to death at all because the church was birthed, if you recall on the de- after the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ just as Eve in the garden came forth from Adam's side so too the church came forth from the wounds that were uh, inflicted upon him on the cross as he was uh, As a spear pierced his side and water and blood came out, it was after that that the church was birthed, and we were birthed just like Eve was through Adam, through the side of Jesus Christ. And so we, therefore, are to be the church of the living and not of the dead. They had a reputation that they were alive, but they were dead as doornails. They were dead. We are to be dead to sin, but alive to God. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6, verse 5. We're going to read this quickly. This is a great chapter, a great passage. And it really speaks of baptism and what baptism really means. But notice what he says. For if we, verse 5, have been united together in the likeness of his death, speaking of the church to Christ, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, verse 6, that our old man, this old nature, it was crucified with Him on the cross that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Have you ever noticed that uh, uh, somebody in the grave, that they don't struggle with sin at all anymore. There's no struggle with sin anymore. So he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe also that we shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, he dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. For the life that he lives, he lives to God. And here's our verse in verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ our Lord. And so there it is. We are not to be dead. There should be nothing, no connotation Uh, concerning the church as far as deadness. It should be alive. Certainly dead to sin, but alive to God. And we have this ability, and this is scary, we have this free will. We have the ability, like the church of Sardis, to forsake the fountain of living waters, who is God Himself. His power and His enablement. Free will is one of the most wonderful and also the most dangerous thing that we human beings possess. In Jeremiah chapter 2, God speaking to, to Jerusalem before uh, the Babylonians were literally coming on their doorstep. And Jeremiah wrote this to, the, 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 um, God spoke this uh, to Jeremiah to give to the people of, of Judah and Jerusalem. And what did he say? In verse 11, he says, Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? Because God was going to upbraid them for their idolatry. And in fact, it's for that very reason that they were going to be taken into captivity. He says, Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory. For what does, for what does not profit? And then God says, Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. Here it is, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And a cistern was exactly that, a a vessel, a large container where rainwater could come in, and it was uh, there for for a purpose, for, for, for life. But they were searching out things that had a broken cistern that really weren't offering them life at all, but rather death. And they had forsaken the Lord, and now they were going to, be, to go through the consequences of that. Because whenever we turn our back on the Lord, any church, any individual, there is only uh, bad consequences. There is only consequences, and they're horrible. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, he says this again, O Lord, the hope of Israel all who forsake you shall be ashamed and those who depart from me the lord says shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the lord the fountain of living waters and see that's what happened to this church they had forsaken the lord they had uh let go in deuteronomy chapter 30 we're going to uh end this section on this deuteronomy chapter 30 beginning in verse 15 let me read it to you you know, feel free to write these down, but for time's sake, I'm just going to read it to you. It'll be in the uh, notes as well. The Lord speaking to the children of Israel through Moses, and, and this is really pertinent to, us, pertinent to us today. Verse 15, he says, See, I have set before you, and this is right before the children of Israel were going to cross over the Jordan River into the Promised Land after they had come out of Egypt. God says to them, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, And that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments, His statutes, and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. Does that sound like a loving God or not? I mean, that that sounds to me like a loving Father who cares for His people tremendously. And this is what a father does. No father looks at his children and and wishes evil upon them. He tells them the truth. He guides and directs them. And when they go astray, he has to discipline them. God did the same thing with them, and he does the same thing with us. He chastens those whom he loves. And I've been chastened of the Lord, and I know that I'm his because of that. If he didn't chasten me, then I wouldn't have a real father. But notice what he says. I announce to you today... But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which, I, which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. And here it is in verse 19. I call heaven and earth as witness today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. That's God's commandment to us. Choose life. Choose life. And, and, you know, choose life in every aspect of your life. Choose life. You know, what have you chosen thus far? What have you chosen? What choices have you made? Were they uh, decisions based upon your, your knowledge of Christ? and in your relationship with Christ have they been choices that have been more aligned with death rather than life we need to focus on the things that are good going forward and choose life choose life recently we were in a in a park at Shadow Pines Park just I don't know about a week or two ago a week and a half ago and I'll never forget there was a young man there who was playing with it. We, we were down, coming down, going down a hill and coming up a hill, and we saw a young teenage boy on his bike, and he was playing with a, a, a gardener snake. And it was a beautiful day, and he was just out doing his thing, you know, just out exploring, which young guys do. But he was there playing with the snake. And so we came upon him, and I said, Hey, wow, look at that, you know, what kind of snake is that? And, he, and I looked, and I could see that it was a gardener snake. And then right across the path, there was a den of snakes. And we looked over there, and sure enough, there they are in the sun. The sun was beating right out. They're out there sunning themselves. They look like tourists out on the Florida beach. So there they are, and uh, they're out there sunning themselves. And I, and I see a bunch of big rocks near there. And so I looked at the young boy, knowing that when I was a young boy, the things that I thought. I remember I, I looked back at him with a smile on my face, and I said, Choose life. choose life because i was hoping that he wasn't going to smash those those uh, those snakes they weren't harming anyone you know but it just reminded me of of everything in life you know life is sacred and we don't have the right to snuff out a life unless our lives are in danger and we're being attacked of course but you know when possible choose life choose life it is a good thing choose life when i set out as a christian i had my own plans of the things that i wanted to do and, and I'm so glad that the Lord intervened in my life and He took me on the path that I was on. He took me on the path that I was on and He put me on a different path. And I'm so glad that He did because I'm more blessed, happy, fulfilled, whatever you want to call it. I would have never have designed what I'm doing now for my life. It would have been the farthest thing from my thoughts, honestly. But God, He causes us first to will and then to do of His good pleasure. And you know what? I'm blessed. I'm very, I very—I truly am but, you know, we need to walk in the old paths. You know, the Bible speaks of uh, of the paths that we take, but we should walk in the old paths. There's a phrase that says, If it is new, it is not true. And if it is true, it is not new. <laughs> Again, if it is new, it is not true. And if it is true, it is not new. And there are so many things today, people purporting, Oh, I got a new revelation of God. No, you didn't. Uh, there's nothing new that God has needs to add to His Scripture. Certainly, our experiences can be unique, but there's not going to be any other doctrine or any other uh, bodies of uh, material that we can look at and and um, and say that you know this is brand new. We just found this in a cave somewhere. God made sure that what we have in our hands right now has been verified. It's been scrutinized. It's been looked at under the fine tooth comb in every possible way. And some of the most vehement uh, opponents of the Bible have come to salvation as a result of their own investigation into the truths and the veracity of the Scripture. And so, but we are to be to stay on those old paths. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 16, the Lord is speaking to Judah and Benjamin, the, the southern two tribes, right before the Babylonian captivity in 606 BC. It says, Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, for the old paths, where the good way is, and walk in it. This church in Sardis was not on that narrow path. They weren't on the path at all. They were dying on the vine, and instead of Uh, being on that old path. You know, a lot of people say, well, it's old, therefore it needs to be replaced with something new. You know, sometimes the old things, there's no need to improve upon them, and especially when it comes to the Lord and His ways. His truth abides forever. His truth stands forever. The world and everything in it will pass away, but what did Jesus say? My word will never pass away, and that His word is truth. In Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 15, he said this, Because my people have forgotten me, and he's speaking of the Jews, of of Judah and Jerusalem specifically, they have burned incense to worthless idols, and they have caused themselves to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths, to walk in pathways and not on a highway. And so we see that happen. We see it, we saw that happening to them, and that's why they went into captivity. The psalmist David said, in Psalm 16, you will show me the path of life. The path of life is a wonderful path. And,
0: and, and I'm sorry, that's all the time we have for today, but please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of Revelation.